Audience participation time. What have you or what have you seen others pursue in this life trying to gain satisfaction or, or contentment? Money. 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 Wow. <laughs> Is that personal testimony? Is that, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's, that's the message. Money. What else? Prestige. What's that? Prestige. Prestige. Yeah, some kind of people looking up to us. Contentment. Well, pursuing contentment. But what do they do to pursue money? Money. Secure. So security. Peace of mind. Physical pleasure. Physical pleasure. If I can. If I can get this, it'll satisfy me. Possessions. Adrenaline. Adrenaline. <laughs> that is so true in our culture, isn't it? Comfort. Uh, comfort. Contentment. Contentment, looking for things that will make us happy. Power. 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 Lust. Fame. There's a lot of things that we pursue. And none of it brings us true contentment. Open your Bibles. This is not in the outline, but I want to, we'll look at it again later. Philippians chapter 4. We've been studying the book of Philippians. And we come to this, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, where he talks about contentment. As I said at the beginning, contentment is rare. Very few people ever come to possess it. It's like a rare jewel that very few ever come to possess. And most people don't even know the kind of contentment that God offers is available. Amen. It's kind of like the peace that transcends understanding that we looked at earlier in chapter 4. It's, this contentment is beyond comprehension. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's talking with, um, he's writing to the Philippian church. If you remember, uh, several months back, we, we were in chapter 3, where they had sent a man named Epaphroditus with a gift to them. Um, this church and, and the Apostle Paul had an incredible relationship, a love relationship. In the first part of chapter 4, he calls them his crown and his joy. They just had this wonderful relationship. And they had joined in partnership with him after he established the church in Philippi. And, and now he says, I, I, and I know that you, you didn't have a chance, but now you sent Epaphroditus with this gift and, and it just has, has provided for me, but it has also touched me. But he says, to clarify, in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Next week, we're going to talk about how becoming content is a learned skill. It's not something that is bestowed, it's something that's learned. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to have nothing. And I know how to abound. I know how to have a lot. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of, place, of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can face any kind of circumstance, any kind of situation through Christ who strengthens me. Back to verse 11. The last part. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Content is a rare jewel that God wants us to experience. The world doesn't even realize, we don't even realize that that's what we're chasing when we're chasing after money or prestige or pleasure or or security. We don't even realize that's actually what we're looking for because that alone satisfies and it comes only from God in learning how to give ourselves to Him. But it requires everything of us. In your outline, I put um, contentment and discontentment. So what is it? When we're talking about contentment and the opposite being discontentment, or um, what are we talking about? So I tried to put some information there to describe it. Um, that content is being satisfied, deeply satisfied, at peace, um, at tranquility, secure in what we have through Christ. Where discontentment is believing that we deserve more or better and chasing after it. <clears throat> so being content is being satisfied in God. <clears throat> not in the circumstances, not in the situations, those always change, but in Christ, being content. Contentment is not resignation. It's not going, oh, well, I can't do any better, so I'll just be happy with this. No. It's not lethargy, just not having the wherewithal to try to do anything different. It's not apathy, just not caring anymore. Because some people in their Christian walk try to, um, just, try to use that, just try, well, I don't care anymore. I just don't care anymore. That's not contentment, that's apathy. <clears throat> contentment is an active state of satisfaction it's actively pursuing God and the byproduct of pursuing God then is the satisfaction as we're choosing Christ and so I, I, you know, I, I tried to well, what does that look like it's being satisfied it's being content it's, being, oh, it's, it's uh, having the joy and peace and, and all that God provides for us in the Holy Spirit. Rather than never things never being enough. Because all the things that we named previously, money, so a person thinks, if I just get $2 million, then I will be content. I'll be satisfied. And they get the $2 million, and they're not. Or pursue pleasure. If I can just get this pleasure, then I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. And it doesn't deliver. Or if I, can, if I can reach some level of position and success and prestige, then, I, then I'll be happy. But it doesn't deliver. It's never enough. Nothing in this world will ever be enough. And so it's being satisfied in Christ versus always thinking there's got to be something more. It's, it's being grateful. Gratitude. When we're content in Christ, we're just grateful. Grateful that he, he, he's with us, he loves us, he cares for us. Over complaining. 
Discontentment leads to complaining. And we live in a culture where there are people that have made billions of dollars on this whole idea of being discontent and complaining. It's about, it's, it's it will cause us to have a smile where discontentment makes us frown. It's being joyful, having a joy that is unspeakable over grumpiness. You know, and I read in my journal this week, uh, as I was praying, what, what's going on when I get grumpy? Did you, you, you knew, you, you realized that I get grumpy, don't you? No, no, don't, don't get too enthusiastic about saying yes. But all of us face that, right? All of us, some days you just wake up and you're just, you know, just, and, and I, and so I wrote in my journal, I don't have an answer for you. That'll be your homework. Because it's, but there has to be that element of something's not right in the contentment. There's something that's missing. It's about peace over anger. You know, discontented people are angry. Have you picked that up? They're grumpy. They frown a lot. They're angry. They complain. It's about being generous over being envious. Because when it's never enough, you're always looking at who has a little bit more and wondering why you can't have that little bit more. But contentment leads us to being content with what we have, whether a little or a lot. And as a result, being generous. Because we know it's not what I have. And God, and a little bit later, it talks about in Philippians how God will supply all our needs. It's about bringing light into a room because of our contentment and our, and our satisfaction in Christ and our alignment with Him. And when we enter the room, people are glad to see us because they, they see the contentment ooze from us. They don't know what it is. But if you're discontent, it's like you bring darkness. And people go, oh no, I hope I, he doesn't sit beside me. So that's, just, that's it. just trying to get our heads around what we're talking about when we're talking about contentment. So next week we're going to talk about how do we learn to be content. But this week we have to embrace some realities about contentment as foundational to learning how to be content. So let's talk about it. The first one is that everything is all about God always. Everything in life, everything in life is all about God always. From the very beginning, God, who has no beginning and has no end, He was always existed, and He created all things. So from you can't even say at the beginning, the beginning of humanity and creation, but try to wrap your mind around the fact that, he, that he's always been. He's, you know, he's infinite. You know, when I was little, we'd have an argument. Is that, and, well, let me back up. When our kids were little, I would talk to them, and I would say, I love you, and they'd say, I love you. I'd say, I love you more. I love you more. I love you five times more. I love and then we get it. And the ultimate is what? Infinity. I love you to infinity. Well, what do they say to that? Because you can't comprehend it, right? God has no beginning and he has no end. So it's, it's always been all about God. From, 
It's always all about God. God is the focal point of all things. Did you catch that? Now, there are some people who say, that seems selfish. No, it's just the reality of God is God. And it is as we align ourselves according to His creation that we experience contentment. So His design and creation, He, contented, he, he created us for contentment, satisfaction in Him. Genesis, He created Adam and Eve and all of, all of, all of the things for so that he could have relationship with them and they could be satisfied in him. That was the goal. So he created us so that he could love us and we could love him in return. And, and that's the epitome of contentment and satisfaction and joy and peace and, and all that he has for us. That's his creation. But it all starts with everything all about God always. And we have to land there. It's all about God. It's not about me. It's about God. Sin then turned everything upside down. Sin turned everything upside down. So the man and woman chose to rebel against God. And as a result, everything turned upside down. Contentment fled along with everything else. And so from that point on, humanity has been dissatisfied. Discontent. Because we're separated from God. In order to be content, and content, then, we have to learn to turn right side up, which we'll talk about next time. God created us so he knows what satisfies. And what satisfies us is him. Contentment is a byproduct of being aligned with God because everything is all about God, always. When sin turned everything upside down, it didn't take long for it to impact humanity. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 3. We, we're, we're all uh, probably familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. They sinned, and, and as a result... They were ashamed because they were naked. They clothed themselves. They were separated from God. They could no longer be in the Garden of Eden. They had to go, and now it's going to be harder for them to work, and, and life's going to be difficult. And, um, and then they began to have children, which in an upside-down world makes life harder. Doesn't mean there's not joy and contentment, but it makes life harder. Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of their two first two children. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard, in other words, approved, accepted um, Abel, Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It wasn't right because he was being disobedient. God had somehow, some way indicated what he wanted as an offering. Abel said, yes, I want to do that. Cain said, no, I'm going to do it my own way. And so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? 
If you, do, if you do well, will you be accepted? In other words, if you just follow my instructions, you'll be, I will accept you, and you'll have contentment, and you'll be satisfied. And that's what he says to all of us. Because everything is about God, all about God, always. It's about His ways. And He has created us so that when we follow His ways, then we can experience the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of the things that bring contentment in our lives. But in our sinfulness, we want to do it our way. Right? And that's what Cain was doing. And God reaches out to him and he says, oh, if you just follow my way, you'll be fine. If you just follow my way, just do it my way. But Cain refused to accept the fact that it's all about God always. His way, his plan, his purposes. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You have to choose my way, Cain, instead of your way. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's what discontent does. If we are not in alignment with God and experiencing the contentment, we will never be in good relationship with other people. It's impossible because there we will be at odds with other people. We'll always be measuring ourselves by those people. We'll always be wanting them to do things for us that will make us happy, our relationship, because it, when it's not always all about God, it's about us. And we're not following God's ways. And the only way that contentment and satisfaction works is if we're doing it God's way. And so Cain, instead of submitting, humbling himself before God to say, okay, I'll do it your way, said, no, I'm going, I'm refusing to do that. And as a result, he got angry with his brother who had nothing to do with it. But because Abel was doing it right, he became the target of Cain and he killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. So a broken relationship with God leads to a broken relationship with other people, which leads to lying and disregarding God's rules deeper and deeper and deeper. Just as we try to seek those things that will satisfy when we are, are seeking our own ways, it's like a whirlpool that goes deeper and deeper and just gets us into more and more and more trouble. That's what we see in Cain. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And what he didn't realize is the answer is yes. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's, so when we're not following God, when it's not about all about God always, then we do our own way and we choose against God and we don't recognize that God already knows. As if we think we can get away with it. Because God is eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-loving. And Abel paid the price. For Did you know that if you don't align yourself with God and pursue God and, and live in that contentment, you will hurt other people? Yeah. You, won't mean, you may not mean to, but you will. 
Because out of alignment with God causes us to hurt the people that we claim to love most. Jesus as Lord turns everything right side up then. That's where we come back to Philippians. And by the way, does anybody need a Bible? Does anybody? We've got Bibles back there. Okay, we'll be looking at a few verses. So we come back to Philippians chapter 4. Jesus as Lord turns everything right side up. When Jesus is Lord, and that's the learning process. So when we accept Christ as Savior, it doesn't mean we automatically turn right side up. It means we now are on the path of God turning us right side up. It's a 180 degree turn. Philippians 4, I rejoice greatly, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you, re- you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, I'm going to pause here and challenge you to make sure that you really believe that in every situation, God can make you content. Because there are a lot of situations that will take you to the limit. And when you get to the limit, it's about surrendering to God. It's about doing it His way that can bring supernatural contentment. I think there, there's this part of us, even as Christians, where we've kind of got stuff, some stuff parked over here um, as kind of, okay, I, I, you know, in, in, in theory, yeah, God can take everything, but there's a few things over here that mm, uh, I don't think so. They've gone on too long. It's been way too hard. It's just things haven't worked out. I'm just, I don't think that, and God will start poking on those. You know why? Because everything is always all about God, who is all about you. He sent his only son to die in your place because he's all about you. He sent his Holy Spirit to live within you, his very presence, because he's all about you. And he will be all about you when we make ourselves all about him. And that's the, that's the foundation, that's the first foundation reality before we can ever learn to be content is we have got to settle this issue that everything, everything is always all about God. Amen. Brings us to number two. And here's where I know I'm stomping on toes. Control is God's job. Surrender to God is our job. We know this. But boy, is it hard. Control is God's job. It's one thing to say that everything is all about God always. It's another to actually live like God is all, is everything. It's about, so I put some bullet points there for you. It's about choosing the unseen heavenly realm reality. And we've, we've talked in, past, you know, I'll, I guess it's been a year, year and a half when we first started talking about the heavenly realm versus the earthly realm. The heavenly realm is that which is unseen. It's the kingdom of God that is with us now, but it's where God is functioning, the unseen. But the earthly realm is what we can see, the physical things that we can see, taste, touch, and feel. 
And, and so uh, allowing God to be in control and, and re- surrendering control is about focusing on that heavenly ra- reality rather than the earthly one. When this earthly realm is calling to us all the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So when Jesus came and brought his kingdom, when the Holy Spirit came, his kingdom came. And so it's, um, we're living in two kingdoms at the same time. It's not like the kingdom of heaven is way out there somewhere. It's here. It's among us. We're, and, and so what we, it, this calls us to say, I'm, I'm going to pause when I'm facing things with God and, and ask him, God, what is it that you're seeing? I'm going to say, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you want me to experience here? Write this down. We have to get good at having, start, begin the quote, this is going to be good, end quote, attitude. We have to get good at having the this is going to be good attitude. That's where the disciples, we see the disciples in the Gospels all the time making their mistakes. Because every time they faced something that they didn't think was right, they would try to tell Jesus what he should be doing or what can't be done instead of asking him what he wants them to do. One of, a couple of my favorite stories is um, Jesus is gathering all kinds of popularity. Thousands of people are coming to him. And they're in a remote place, the disciples having, and I think they're patting themselves on the back for being compassionate, come to Jesus and say to him, Lord, you, these people, we're, we're way away, and there's nothing to eat. And we're concerned for these people that, that they might faint along the way trying to get something. You need to send them away now before it gets dark so that they can go find something to eat. And Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. They're going, what? Even if we had enough, even if we had a year's wages worth of money, if we bought food, everybody would only get a bite. Jesus says, oh, just shut up. Have them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And, he, and they sit down in groups of 50 and 100, and, and um, he finds some food, he breaks it, and they start passing out. 5,000 men plus women and children are fed. And they gather up 12 basketfuls. How many disciples were there? 12. My hunch, I, I, Bible didn't say this, but my hunch is so that as each one of them is carrying <laughs> to the next place, every, with every step they're going, huh, huh, uh, what just happened? And they got that fixed in their head. Sometime later, there's the same situation. Thousands of people don't have anything to eat. They come to Jesus, says, these people don't have anything to eat. And he says, you feed them. Now, you would think after the first experience, their response would be, okay, this is going to be good. That's what I'm talking about. 
when you face situations that you don't have any control over, that you don't think you could be content in, we need to get good at the attitude of, of going to God and saying, in the unseen, what are you seeing? Because if they would be able to see with Jesus, they could see he's going to feed them. But instead, they say, we can't do that. What if one of them, just one of them, would have said, hey guys, he's got some history here. He's got, there's a track record going. I think he's going to do it again. This is, this is going to be good. This is really going to be good. Then they could have experienced the joy of the miracle. Instead, Jesus does the same thing again, feeds thousands of people all over again, and they have their tails between their legs because they don't have enough faith. And Jesus confronts them later about not having enough faith. We will do the same thing unless we develop the attitude of saying when we face the most difficult situations that threaten to take our contentment away, that threaten to overwhelm us, unless we start saying, okay, God, help me to see from what you're seeing, this is going to be good. Because nothing's impossible with God. Got it? Nothing. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned to be content in all situations. Whether having a lot or little, abundance or, or nothing. We have got to get good at seeing the impossible and looking at the unseen and saying, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't even know what he's going to do. Whatever it is, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. But it requires humility. That's the next bullet point. Humility is putting God on the throne and being at his feet. Humility is recognizing the reality of God is God and I'm not. Humility is letting God be God. That means God's job is to be in control. And putting myself at his feet and recognizing my job is not to be in control. Humility is saying, God, I don't know how you want to do this, but I'm laying this in your hands. It's, it's the epitome of arrogance to go to God and say, God, I got this situation at work, and now, God, what you need to do is tomorrow at 8 o'clock, and just lay out as if we know better than God. It's not our job to be in control. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 gives us a challenge and a promise. Humble yourselves, therefore, under, God, uh, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourself. Put yourself at Jesus' feet. Recognize that he's God. Everything is all about God always. Put yourself at his feet and submit. And at the proper time, he will lift you up. At the proper time, he will bring you to the place where he wants you to be rather than the place where you want to be. In verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. When we recognize that God is God and everything's all about him, it's easy to recognize, okay, he's responsible for my anxieties. He's responsible for all my fears, all my difficulties. It, now it's a learned skill. We'll talk about that next week. Casting all your anxieties because he cares for you. 
You have the God. So everything is all about God always, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-everything, and He cares for you. So He's not going to let you. He's not going to let you go. You can run like Cain did, out of his hand. And then, here's where I really want to zero in on. Surrendering control and surrendering knowing the details of... The, so when I say, I have, you notice I have knowing in quotation marks. What I mean by knowing is knowing the details of what's going to happen. So surrendering control, power, surrendering knowing what God's going to do, and surrendering my expectations of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. So the challenge is, I'm not in control. It's okay if I don't even know how God's going to work. And I'm going to put my expectations on Him rather than what He does. Follow? It is ultimate arrogance to know that, to think that we know best and to try to run our own lives. So as I was working on this this week, I was said, I got, I got to give my mind a break. And so I started reading a, uh, a book on histories of revival, and then God just kind of snapped something into place in my head. And I wrote this down. He says, um, God doesn't reveal any more than necessary. Much to our chagrin, a lot of times. Because we have this desire to know. In fact, in our culture, um, they've got some acronyms now. The, the FOMO, the fear of missing out, the fear of, or there's, I, I don't know what the other one is, but it's the fear of not knowing. We have this deep desire to know. But God doesn't reveal any more than necessary, and thus, Allowing him to do what he wants to do and, and ha experiencing contentment requires letting go of knowing what God will do next. A willingness to walk in step and deliberately be content with not knowing even today's plan. This is big. This, I, I think this is really huge in being content because there's something in us that we want to know. Um, you know, there have been times when there have been disasters that happened in our culture, and, and I remember I couldn't take my eyes off of the TV. Even though what I was watching was the same clip repeatedly, hour after hour, with the same comment, saying the same, but there's something I want to know. And then I, I, then I look back on it and go, it didn't even affect me. I'm busy wasting my time watching something. I want to know information about this particular situation, and it doesn't even affect me. We I think there's something when sin came in and turned us upside down is that we want to know stuff about other people. Our culture has industries built on that very thing. We want to know. People Magazine came out back, I think I was in junior high or high school, and it was, a, it was an immediate success. Why? Because we, in our humanity, want to know about 
people that we will never meet, that we will never have any, the, the, you know, or the whole shows on the rich and the famous, all this stuff. We have this desire to know. It is a hard, it will be a hard thing for us to learn that it's okay not to know. And when I get to my knees, as I start my day, and I turn my life over to God, I want to know what He's going to do. And I have to surrender. For Him to be in control, I have to surrender and be willing not to know what He's going to do next. I put some scriptures there that drive this home. Back in the Old Testament, in fact, um, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt, and now they need to be fed. And God fed them with what? Manna. Manna. And how much did he give them? Enough for the day. And then uh, the day before Sabbath, they collect enough for two days. Why in the world would he do that? Why wouldn't he just give them a week's worth? It's like, who wants to go to the grocery store every day? Because he wanted them to depend upon him. In Matthew chapter 6, 33-34, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God. Let him be in control and his righteousness. Follow his ways. Align yourself with him. And all these things, and he's talking about food and clothing and shelter, will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow take care of itself. Let God have it. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need to let go of this desire to know the details. God will give you the details you need to know. That's when we're focused on the unseen. God, tell me what I need to know. And then just walk in step with him, not knowing what might come. When we're discontent, it's because we're focusing on things that don't, that we're not responsible for. Turn, open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we, Jesus has died, been resurrected, and now he's showing up uh, to his disciples here and there getting them ready for their assignment. And he visits them on one occasion, and he sits down with Peter, and he restores him, because Peter had betrayed him three times, and so he sits there and he talks with Peter, says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You know, he, he, it's a restoration. And then he tells him um, that he's going to be crucified. Now, I, Again, why would you tell Peter that? I probably wouldn't, but I'm not Jesus. God will give you the details of your life that you need to know as you spend time with him and you're aligned with him walking in step. So for some reason, Jesus saw fit to tell Peter that in his life he was going to be crucified. And then I get a kick out of this because it just, it, this is what we do. So Peter gets the news. He's been restored. He's going to be the leader of the church. But someday, Peter, you're going to be crucified. Cru- you know, and Peter just had to be reeling. I'm going to be crucified. 
And so what does he do? Peter turned, John 21, 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, John, the one who had leaned against him, against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So he's identifying that is John. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? This is what we do, right? Well, if I'm going to be crucified, well, what's going to happen to John? I mean, I'm, he, I'm part of the inner He's part of the inner circle. Is he going to be crucified? Why? Because we want to know, right? And we want it to be fair. And who knows what else is going on in Peter's mind. And I love Jesus' response. Because this is his response to every one of us. When we start asking questions and get nosy about things that we have no business being nosy about. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Another herb translation. Peter, mind your own business. <laughs> you follow me. That's it. We need to surrender the desire to know details about whatever that he doesn't want to Go to another one, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, I put it there. Now Jesus is headed back to the Father, and he's leaving those who had been gathered. It says, so when they had come together, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You, you see how, how deeply it's embedded in our nature? We want to know the details of the kingdom. Peter wanted to know the details about John, and now all of them are going, well, what about the kingdom? What, you know, Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he goes on to tell them, do the mission. That's what we, so, it is, look at me. It is not for us to know the things that only God needs to know. It is not our business to know any more than what God tells us. And so when we're praying, it's, God, tell, tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to know to be aligned with you, walking a step with you today. Flip over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Um, James is the half-brother of Jesus, the biological son of Mary, but not... Um, and he became the leader of the, the Jerusalem church. And he writes a, a book inspired by the Holy Spirit that is very practical. And one of the things that he says in, in James chapter 4, verse 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. It's the height of arrogance to believe that we know what the future is going to be, what God is going to do. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Reality check. Instead, and so he's not saying don't plan. Instead, he says, it's all about, God. everything is all about God always. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So it's not that you don't plan, it's that you don't have the arrogance of saying, I know exactly what I'm doing, and God's going to follow my plan. This is what, and so we say, if the Lord wills, this is what. 
As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So what, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him in his sin. It's about dependency upon God. It's about walking in step with him. It's about surrendering control and surrendering our need to know exactly what God is up to. There's so much more I could say about that. I put a statement there. Our depth of intimacy with Christ directly determines the depth of contentment we experience. Because our intimacy with him allows us to trust him to be in charge. Allows him to to trust him to be in control. Allows us to trust that he knows what job, what house, what car, what... And, and he can guide whatever he wants to guide whenever he wants to guide it. It doesn't mean we don't plan. It means we put our plans in his hands and we follow in his step in intimacy. I was listening to a podcast and, um, and it highlighted a hymn that I'd forgotten about. The hymn is Day by Day, and I'll read the words in just a moment, but What I didn't know was about the writer. Her name is Lina Sandell, born on October 30th, 1832 in Sweden. Lina was the daughter of a pastor. When she was 26 years of age, she accompanied her father, a pastor, who was doing God's work on a journey to Gothenburg tragedy occurred before the destination was reached. The ship gave a sudden lurch and Lina's father was thrown overboard and drowned before her very eyes. A pastor who was doing God's work. We need to surrender control to God. He was a pastor. He was following God. He was serving God. Nothing happens to people who are serving God except God allows it or does it. He allowed it. Lina could have said, well, if that's what God's going to do, then I'm not serving him anymore. Instead, it motivated her to turn to him more deeply. And she began to put her, the thoughts about who God is and what God does into the words of hymns. And as a result of that passion for serving him that came as a re- after her father died, we have a number of different th- uh, of hymns. And this one, now we, that's the framework. She lost her devoted, the, the, her dad who was devoted to God, she was devoted to him, loved him deeply. And then she pens these words. See if they resonate. And I'll see if I can get through without crying. Day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. You hear the surrender of control and knowing? Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day, 
the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me. He whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he made. Help me then in every tribulation, so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand, one by one the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. Can we be satisfied with not being in control? Can we be satisfied with not even knowing what God is up to? Can we just reach up and take his hand, allow him to guide? Would you bow your heads? How do you need to surrender in humility to make God everything all the time? How do you need to let God be in control and just let it be your job to let serve God whatever comes? Surrender is in our culture, such a negative word, but what we see in the Bible, it's the most positive, active, freedom-giving word there is. So I encourage you in, in these moments, as specifically as you possibly can, is to surrender, to let God be God. To trust Him as your loving Heavenly Father. That He knows best that he's always there. That all your life he's been faithful. Lord, we confess that what we talked about this morning is so hard because we're still so upside down. I pray this coming week that you would prepare us to see how we can learn to be content and trusting you. That you would help us to settle these issues and embrace these realities. God, put your finger on the things that you know that we're still struggling with, that we're still holding on to, even things that we're not aware of. Peel back another layer of humility that we need to, to experience. And help us to just allow you to be God. Lord, thank you for not just being God, but being our loving Heavenly Father. For embracing us, reaching out to us. Help us to trust you more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.